everyone to the Culinary Now podcast. I'm Matt. I'm Mike. And I'm Jamie. And today we're going to talk about the evolution of culinary education. To start us off and add some context to today's pod, I'd like to have each of us talk about our degrees. So I'll go first. I went to Johnson Wales for baking and pastry. I have a bachelor's degree in baking and pastry, and I also have my master's degree in teaching and learning. Mike, what about you? Uh, yeah, no, I uh, went to Johnson & Wales also. My uh, associate's degree was in culinary arts, my bachelor's in culinary nutrition. I have a master's at Johnson & Wales uh, in food service education, and I am currently finishing my doctorate at Northeastern University in curriculum teaching and learning. Matt? So I'm the outlier. I went to the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, I got my associate's degree in culinary arts, my bachelor's degree in professional studies, whatever that is. I think it was probably at the time when uh, they were just starting bachelor's degrees for culinary programs. Uh, And I got my master's degree from Johnson & Wales in education, teaching and learning uh, in 2019. So I want to take this conversation in a little bit of a direction here because I'm coming off of the second annual FIT Symposium, which is this sort of event that Johnson Wales holds that speaks to sort of the status or, or, or updates people on what's going on in the industry right now. And our keynote this year was Michael Ruman. And, you know, Michael is well known as an author. He co-authored the French Laundry Cookbook. He wrote that sort of important piece back in like the 90s called The Making of a Chef, where he actually went to CIA and, and went through the program to understand what it means to be a chef. And part of his keynote, he talked a lot about the evolution of the chef, you know, starting back uh, in the early 1900s with like Carême and Escoffier and all those people. And then he kind of like took it through the 20th century and talked about really notable people and how they played a, a role in shaping where food was today. And then he obviously he ended with some more relevant people. And it made me think, you know, if he was speaking about the evolution of a chef, it made me think about the evolution of culinary education because all of the chefs that he mentioned, or many of the chefs, if not all of the chefs he mentioned, at some point were, were a part of, of culinary education. The older ones, the ones way back in the 18th, 19th century, uh, or sorry, 19th, 20th century, they got more of the apprenticeship model. But then as culinary education became a thing in the US, a lot of the chefs that we emulate or, or idolize today, Thomas Keller being one that he's obviously connected to, really benefited from culinary education. They went to CIA, then they went on and they did their thing. So I wanted to sort of piggyback on Jamie's thought of, of talking a little bit about culinary education and to speak about sort of the history, where we were, where we are, maybe where we're going, but then more importantly, talk about you know what opportunities exist. So Mike, I know you teach a course in, in the Master's in Arts and Teaching program at Johnson & Wales. Will you dive a little bit into the culinary history, or I'm sorry, the history of culinary education? Can you take us on a little tour? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and and there's a great article so that your listeners uh, can uh, you know definitely look it up. Uh, entitled A Brief History of Culinary Arts uh, Education in America, and it was written by Jeffrey uh, Brown. Um, he has his doctorate uh, and is an assistant professor at the Collins School of Hospitality Management, and. You know, really, it, it goes all the way through, as you mentioned before, that apprenticeship model, um, you know, starting off uh, in Europe and with, you know, chefs like Creme and uh, Escoffier. And, you know, you're looking at 1784 um, to the 1800s uh, at this time period. And they were cooking for the elite. 
Uh, so, and that's really an important, um, distinction is, you know, their style of cooking, uh, really started, um, high end and their way of distinguishing themselves from the average at home commoner cook, uh, was to add this piece of artistry. And this is where we see culinary arts, uh, as an art form really start to take shape, uh, through these apprenticeship models. And that followed us here um, all the way to uh, the early beginnings of America, where debates started to happen about um, how culinary arts is going to be um, taught in this uh, in this new world, and whether we were going to follow this European apprenticeship model or where we're going to do something maybe a little bit different. Some of the problems that were identified early on in the uh, apprenticeship model was really a lack of publication and written material. Um, so there were no cookbooks. Um, so this predates uh, some of those uh, um, uh, publications. You might find some, you know, small print here and there, but they weren't really standardized, right? So you were looking at a pinch a dash, a smidge, those were the type of measurements that you were uh, really going to uh, utilize back in the day. So you really relied on your um, master and apprenticeship model to train uh, future culinarians. Um, And in many ways, the debate started uh, really here in the United States, you know, kind of early on. Um, so one of our first culinary schools, uh, that opened up right in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, so it was, uh, the, uh, uh, 1896, the Boston cooking school, uh, and, and the creation of a cookbook, uh, came out of that, uh, came out of that school by, uh, Fanny Farmer, uh, and it's still referenced today. And I think one of the calls to fame of this cookbook was, you know, it started to put together some measurements, and uh, I know Jamie, you had uh, you had some um, experience with that Boston Cooking School, right? Yeah, for sure. My grandmother actually went to Fanny Farmer Cooking School back in the day, and it's really funny. My dad, her son, became a chef, and then myself, and we didn't find out that, or I didn't find out that she had even gone to this school. Unfortunately, until at her funeral, it was part of her eulogy, uh, was that she had gone to the Fanny Farmer Cooking School. But I think it's really fun to see its uh, lineage in in my family. Yeah, that is pretty cool. It's a pretty cool story. So, uh, so from there, um, we still see. So Fanny Farmer, uh, the cooking school, was really going to be geared um, more towards uh, kind of a mix, but mostly the at home uh, cook. Uh, was predominantly what you were getting out of that uh, particular school. So um, the professional chef um, really lacked uh, an organization at this time in the United States. Uh, So one of the first organizations um, to be formed was the American Culinary Federation in uh, 1929. And they started um, an apprenticeship model uh, here uh, in the uh, United States, firsthand and as well as, you know, starting to um, develop standards around the professional chef. Um, So, and they were recognized by uh, the United States government. Um, One of the problems with the apprenticeship model, which we still see today, uh, was that uh, you were only given one master, right? So if you 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 were training with this chef, if for whatever reason that chef left, 
uh, the restaurant, you pretty much had to start all over again. Uh, so, so there was a lack of diversity as far as perspective uh, was concerned uh, in that model. And if you had a really good apprentice, uh, then you went really, you had a good experience. But we also know that there was a lot of abuse uh, within that uh, system um, as well. So this brings us all the way to 1946, um, where the New Haven Restaurant Institute uh, was started at the Yale uh, University campus. Uh, and I, I see Matt is shaking his head because you know what the New Haven Restaurant Institute uh, soon becomes, right? I do. I do. I, as I said, I, I'm a little bit bias. I'm like the outlier here. Uh, I went to CIA, so I obviously have a little bit of appreciation and and love for that, for that program. And I also just think that, you know, it's funny because like I went to CIA, then I went to Johnson and Wales for my master's, but, and I teach at Johnson and Wales. So I, I, I've seen both. Right. And, you know, for those out there that are wondering, you know, is one better than the other, like they're different. Right. And they both offer something great. It's just really what you want. And like, you know, we, we can dive into that a little bit later, but Mike, one thing you mentioned, is sort of this apprenticeship model and how it, it sort of led into sort of an organization with the ACF and how that sort of like was, you know, sort of coupled with the Fannie uh, Farmer School. But we missed out one really important thing that I just want to go back to if we can. And that did come from Europe. And I think that it's something that we 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 still acknowledge and use a little bit today. And that's sort of the the point where Escoffier came into it and created um, sort of this hybrid. He was doing a little bit of education, but he was more a working chef at the time. And he created a system, which then the ACF did adopt really as its sort of um, its benchmark for like training professional chefs. And I just want to give a little bit of credit because in that timeline, I mean, he was instrumental into establishing what the modern kitchen, when we say modern kitchen, the kitchen of the 20th century looked like. And that was very much sort of assembly line structured. And that did us well for a long time. Now that's changed in, in probably the last 25 years because, you know, the industry's changed, but I just want to acknowledge, I acknowledge that important part of the industry and the history. I think on the Escoffier system, I think we need to acknowledge that it was called the brigade system and it was a hierarchy in kitchens, which we do actually still see today where there was an executive chef, there were sous chefs, there were cooks, and there was a hierarchy in the, in the kitchen. It was structured in a certain way. And I think that is still used in kitchens today. Maybe not to the degree that you were speaking to Matt, but I think his hierarchy still lives. Yeah, no, and I, I, I would agree with that. And I, I think, you know, at the time when the brigade system came about, um, you know, it's important to note where the origins of that, you know, really came from. And this was a military. So military also has brigades. And kitchens were the wild, wild west, um, you know, so and Escoffier needed really a, a system to organize a whole bunch of people that were doing all these odd tasks, but somehow it came together uh, in a complete experience for the guest, uh, royalty or um, the elite. Uh, So uh, his system provided that hierarchical structure um, to it. But, you know, it is is important to note uh, that I think that there there are also some potential limitations uh, to that that system as well. And and it often, often gets debated. Yeah, I think that one of those limitations is cost, right? I mean, back in the 
late 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, Escoffier was probably in his prime early 1900s. Like labor standards and well-being of your employees was really not a high priority. So you could afford to have a lot of people in a kitchen working. Like that doesn't happen anymore. And where Jamie's point is true, we still have a hierarchy, although it has evolved, is now people are doing what they did in Escoffier's time, maybe not to the intricacy or the elaboracy, but they did it with more people. Now we're doing it with fewer people. And I think that's an important factor because we can't afford, I mean, restaurant margins have shrunk significantly over the last, you know, half century. And you just have to do it with fewer people now. So I think that's one of the big things that's changed. Yeah. And I, I think another thing with the brigade system and really that I mean, what you're looking at, not just from not just cost, um, but also um, it, it, it took a leadership style that basically um, put the onus on uh, an individual. You know, the executive chef was, you know, quote unquote, this kind of, you know, superhero kind of character uh, that would come in and organize the entire system. And, and in some some cases, we still see that uh, today. But we also see evolutions in uh, leadership uh, and operations to be more creative type teams um, and a flatter hierarchical curve and leadership known as practice rather than individual. So I just want to piggyback on that because you said something that's really important is that the chef in this time became, you know, in a more important person, it was a more glamorous position. It was something that people aspired to maybe far more than ever in the past. And even after Escoffier, you know, with the CIA after from New Haven into New York, where it became, you know, in the forties and fifties, and then Johnson and Wales in the seventies. And as culinary education became more of a desired vocation, a more desired career for people, I think that that glamorizing of the chef really hit its sweet spot in like the 80s and 90s, you know, and that the introduction of Food Network and really when becoming a chef became almost a celebrity-like opportunity. And we all know that very few people actually became celebrity chefs, but I think that the boom that we saw in the 90s going into, you know, the mid-2000s when culinary education was crazy, you know, Johnson & Wales was running three different lab sections a day, a morning, an afternoon, and a night. Like, that was insane. It's partially because of media, of celebrity chefs, making it seem like being a chef was an opportunity to be a star. I would 100% agree with that because actually Food Network is one of the reasons I chose to go to culinary school. It was the first time you saw, I mean, this career that my dad was in my whole life, right? This is the first time you saw it on a bigger scale and you saw that it could have this quote unquote celebrity status that you could make a real career out of it. And I think you are a hundred percent right that it glamorized it. And it probably got a lot of people interested in this, this profession. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it does go back to, um, you know, really looking at, you know, the 1940s is where you see culinary education in America in particular. Post-war economy uh, is booming at this point. Uh, James Beard uh, starts with the television revolution in 1946. Uh, and then, of course, we all know the French chef, uh, Julia Child, uh, 1963. And another important date here in America for culinary arts, uh, 1972. And it's an important year um, 
in culinary education because the federal government changed the designation of chef from being domestic to a profession. Uh, and with its recognition as a, a profession, um, it highlighted the awareness to really need better training culinary, uh, culinary professionals across the board. So those all culminate in the start of what we see all these culinary schools um, and even Johnson and Wales uh, looking at 1972, 1973, right along the same um, time uh, we started our culinary program uh, at the uh, at the university. Um, so there is definitely a boom. So and, and I think I think it's linked to this recognition of the uh, profession um, by the uh, by the government. So. Mike, you alluded to this a little bit that there was the boom and that schools started to emerge because of that new designation. And, you know, we talked a little bit about where we were. I want to talk a little bit now about where we are. And, you know, between 1972 and probably 2015, there was a ton of culinary schools that came out of the woodwork. And some of them had really good foundations, Johnson & Wales, CIA. Obviously, those are institutions. They're pillars. They're, they're nonprofits. They're really doing it for the right reason. But there were a lot of bad actors that kind of came out of the woodwork as well, for-profit institutions that were promising, you know, graduates would – make more than they than they actually would when they graduated or they would become again they would have an easier road to the celebrity status and i think that one of the downfalls that we experience with this glamorization of 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 becoming a chef like you know oh a chef is a star like there's nothing glamorous about working in a restaurant it is it is really really gritty hard work you're sweating you're hurting it's long hours you alienate friends and family often i mean this ton of like bad vices that can pop into it. And that really came to a head, head like the mid to late 2000s when all these schools that were making false promises, you know, couldn't really back up their, their, their claims. And I think that that's sort of brings us to where we are today and, and, and sort of the evolution of, of where we're heading. You know, there's significantly fewer culinary schools out there. Are they still viable? Where are we going? How has it changed since it came onto the, the market heavily in the 1970s. Uh, yeah, so you, you brought up some great points, Matt. Um, and, I, and I think what, you, what, what started to happen um, was the institutionalization of culinary education across the board. And, and what I mean by that is you had a number of schools popping up, uh, for-profits, non-profits alike, um, but a lot of for-profits. Uh, and uh, some of them were, you know, kind of taking advantage uh, of, uh, of the system uh, in some ways and, and not necessarily, um, you know, doing the most ethical work uh, for their, uh, for the, on behalf of their students. Um, but what, what happened is, you know, as, as graduates started coming out of uh, these schools, it led to uh, a growth of culinary education across uh, the United States. And uh, all of these different schools were popping up and you look at their curriculum and you're like, wow, they're all pretty much kind of based upon the same ideas. Um and that's because they were graduates of these other programs coming in, right? So, and starting up these other schools and moving and, and trying to move the craft uh, forward. But in actuality, they were just repeating everything that was going on. You could take, you, you know, side by side um, uh, and take a look at those curriculums and you're like, wow, they are very, very close. And that leads oftentimes institutions towards innovation. 
or, or the need for innovation. And we see that, you know, um, present in really the diversification of culinary arts into what I call codependent disciplines like culinary nutrition, uh, culinary medicine, culinary science, product development, sustainable food systems. Um, those add points of distinction and differentiation between the various programs. I would say that that's like a great distinction, but that's going to be at the college level that you're going to start to make those individualized choices as to which way you want your career to go. I'd like to talk a little bit about the high school level and then working your way up through the different levels and ways to be educated in the culinary realm. And I think if we look, if we start with high school, if we look there first, that's really the first chance that a lot of people have to test, kind of test the waters with this profession, especially if you have a chance to do a Votech program. And I think in the high school level, well, first of all, I've always thought that at 16, 17, 18, I don't know how you're supposed to decide what you want to do for your entire life at that age. I know I'm really lucky. I didn't know what I wanted to do and I did not have pressure and I took a gap year or three before I figured out what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, how I wanted to spend my life. But I think at the high school level, if we start there first, you have that introduction to it. And if we take a look at what you're being taught at the high school level, then we can build on it in the future levels of culinary education. I mean, the high school level is is far more granular. It's very, you know, you know, uh, straightforward. They're teaching you how to do very basic fundamental skills. And, and and you're right, Jamie, it's almost as a way just to say like, Hey, are you really interested in this? And, you know, we all talk to a lot of high school educators. We have great relationships with them because, you know, our connection to them is important because we're the next step for those students that do want to carry on their career. And, you know, if you talk to any high school educator, they're going to tell you that the struggle is real. You know, the budget's in culinary education are already slim. In high school, they're significantly slimmer. And, you know, you have a very limited amount of resources to develop and deliver your curriculum to ultimately a population of students that maybe two out of 10 actually might go on to culinary school. So that's a really difficult thing. And, you know, we always you know, us three in this room, you know, we can gripe all day long about how difficult it is to teach culinary education to 18, 19, 20 year olds. It's really difficult to teach it to 16, 17, 18 year olds, because I mean, just the lack of interest is, is, is not there for all of them. So I think that, you know, huge, huge credit to those who are doing that work in the high school level, because it is not easy, man. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, looking at high schools and vocational education, I mean, just, just in complete uh, transparency, I came from the uh, vocational um, school and studied culinary arts. Uh, and that debate went back all the way to really Dewey. Uh, John Dewey uh, in Chicago was um, heavily influenced um, the creation of this vocational education uh, system. But remember when culinary first started, uh, even at the high school uh, level, um, you know, it, it was looking at the profession and, you know, kids coming into the system had some cooking experience from home. And I don't necessarily know if we see that as much. Um, so and the gap that needs to be covered um, has really increased. So uh, from really understanding the basics going all the way up. And we still see that at the college level for those who who may not have that experience. 
One thing that both of you just touched on is Matt had mentioned that maybe one fifth of the students in a VoTech program go on to a culinary arts college degree. But I just want to point out, and Mike, you touched on this too with home cooking skills. Even if you do a VoTech program and you don't go on to get a degree in culinary arts, you are setting yourself up with life skills to be able to know how to cook, how to do basics is so important. And I think it's really setting yourself up to be able to nourish yourself well and others as you become an adult. And that's actually what a lot of these high school programs sort of bundle their curriculum under is, is life skills, right? Because, you know, we always harken back a little bit to like old education and, and home economics and that type of, pro, uh, you know, curriculum and that type of programming in the school. You know, home ec, as we maybe once imagined, it doesn't exist anymore. It now sort of falls under this life skills curriculum, which might include some, some level of carpentry or automotive repair or other vocational skills um, that sort of of the like. But I think it is really important, Jamie, that even though a small percentage might go on to pursue culinary arts, baking, pastry arts, what have you, as a as a career, maybe post-secondary, the ones that do go through that program at the high school level, no question, get something out of it that they can carry on into their life, which is actually really important because the number of people that cook at home this, these days is fewer and fewer. So we want more people to attend these high school programs to at least understand that like cooking is approachable at a very, at a very low level. And you can do this in a healthy way and, and feed your family, feed whatever, you know, as you go on in your career. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, just to, just to kind of riff off of what you were saying um, is, you know, culinary as a profession is, is really interesting because there is no barrier to entry into our field. Um, there's nothing to say that, you know, you need formal education in order to, uh, in order to be successful, um, in that field. And, and nor should I, I, I ever suggest that, you know, it is, uh, it is a, would ever be a requirement. I think that's, that's important to, you know, recognize and preserve, um, as much as possible. There might not be a barrier to get into this, into this profession, but I will say that there, at, there was a time where schools would require you to have a certain number of experience, years of experience before you could, or hours, I should say, before you could even apply. And for some like myself, that was actually a turnoff to applying to certain schools because it wasn't my personality to go out and ask to work for free and knock on doors and put myself out there because I had zero experience. But on the other hand, I do know chefs that are completely self-taught. And one of the chefs that I worked for taught himself everything off of YouTube. Gee, Jamie, I wonder what school you're talking about when you said like something that requires a certain level. Oh, of, no idea. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but you know, That's a really good point. And I, and I do want to go into the self-taught thing because, I mean, experience – for going into post-secondary college education, I do think that there are, are two really good ways you can go about having some level of prior knowledge prior to getting to your freshman year at, like, say, Johnson & Wales. And that is through a Vogue Tech school. At least then you have an understanding of, like, okay, I like this this career path. I like this skill set. I feel like I want to explore it further. The other way, and this is sort of what I did, is, you know, I worked in a restaurant when I was in high school because I went to a Catholic high school that had no culinary program. So I got that experience there, which, yeah, I checked off a box when I applied to CIA. But ultimately, when you go to culinary school, at least back in, like, the early 
you know, 2000s when I started there, you know, the goal of that was to break you of all the habits that you had coming into that school and teach you the CIA way. And I'm sure that was probably the same at Johnson & Wales back in 2000. And, you know, when demand was really high, they had that level of clout. They could say, we're going to do it our way. The benefit now, and and Mike, you could probably speak to this pretty well, um, better than I can rather, is that accepting people that don't have prior experience actually is a real asset to a culinary education because it allows you to have a blank canvas and allows you to teach them things you know they need to know, but it also allows other students who are more advanced to maybe help teach them as well, be a better peer mentor, which I think is really a direction the industry is moving in. Yeah, no. So I, I think, uh, you know, you, you bring up a, an excellent point and, and I think I, I, th- I think the creation of programs that relied on prior experience really came about to see if you liked uh, the uh, profession and had the fortitude uh, to potentially stick with it. Um, it is it is not necessarily a prerequisite as we start everybody, even 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 the program you know at some of those other schools that required uh, that uh, prior knowledge uh, or experience coming in. Um, they start you at the very beginning. Uh, as you said, to kind of rethink um, or unlearn uh, what you may have the bad habits that you may have picked up um, in the uh, in the process. So, so really, the 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 end result of that or the conclusion is, you know, that was really more to see if you liked it or not, uh, and that if you would stick with it. Jamie, as as someone who had zero experience going into culinary school, one thing I will say that. And of course, I'm biased. I work at Johnson & Wales. I went there. But one thing that I think we do really well is we give our students a really well-rounded education. You can go into our pastry program and you get the basics of bread, of cake, of plated desserts, right? You get every everything. And when I left, I left feeling like I know enough about each topic that I could confidently go into a job and that asked me to make something and I would know enough to be able to do it. And that felt really good as someone that literally had zero experience going in. I felt confident leaving that it would allow me to find my niche and then get a job anywhere and be be decent at it. So let's let's take this in a little bit of a different direction because I know, you know, we talked a lot about you know, sort of the things that happen within culinary schools. And I, and I still want to get to the point of like where we're heading because I feel, and, and, and maybe I'm, I'm actually pretty confident about this. There are a lot of people out there that feel culinary school is a bad choice, whether it's the return on investment, the cost, which are kind of related, but also, you know, they, they have, and again, these people are a little bit cynical and they're open about this. They're saying that like, oh, don't go to culinary school. You're never going to need that information. And I think it's important to note that, you know, culinary education, like any education model is, is you get out what you put in, right? I mean, there are people that go to other colleges, other programs. I, I one of my best friends went to Providence College, graduated with a business degree. The day he graduated from college, he went to Vail and became a lift operator. And he has never used his business degree per se in the way that maybe he was trained to do so. It's important to note that, you know, you're going to benefit from this education because education today is not just, as Jamie mentioned, learning how to make a cake, learning how to make you know a roux. Those are important benchmarks that we get along the way, but it's also the soft skills that are now embedded in education, which are prominent across any level of higher education that is invaluable to students 
um, when they graduate. Yeah. So Matt, I mean, you, you, you definitely bring up a good point and, and the arguments of return on investment, uh, those arguments are there just in higher education in general. Um, it is not something that's necessarily directly connected to studying culinary arts or what does it mean to study uh, culinary arts at a collegiate level or even at a university. And, you know, how do we define um, what that is and what that looks like and, and the scholarship that's involved in our particular field? And, and I think that's important um, to, to, to note is that you know, we are engaging and we do see, I think with the, especially with the diversification of culinary arts into other disciplines, a movement uh, from including culinary arts as both an academic discipline, as well as workforce development. Uh, at its heart, uh, formal culinary education and vocational training was about workforce development, but it didn't mean it ever excluded education or the academic discipline. And one way we move our craft forward is through this application of, uh, of knowledge. Uh, right. So, and it's really, I think you can look at, um, a scholar practitioner model that we see, uh, used in higher education, especially in advanced degrees at the graduate level, uh, and really apply that mindset or thinking, uh, to our craft and our industry. Um, there are a number, although uh, very few, um, because um, there's a lack of uh, graduate level studies done in our particular field that really are calling for, you know, higher level um, uh, thought process that look into, you know, our food system in general and how we impact our food system. Um, and there needs to be that application scholar practitioner approach. And as chefs, we own that. And Mike, you made a very good point that like these programs, you know, th there's not that many of them out there at the higher, higher level. So now we're talking maybe graduate, right? And I know that Johnson & Wales has has done a lot of work to create graduate programs that are connected to the culinary arts. They use that sort of vocational training as the as the backbone of more philosophical, theoretical sort of um, thinking that can lead you into being successful in other areas. And I think it's important to note that like this is a long time coming because there are so many areas within the food system. Like just think about the system in general. It is huge. Food touches everything. Food is political. It is, you know, important. It's, it's important to our survival. I mean, everything that we do in some way probably comes back to food at some level and providing students the opportunity to take those sort of fundamentals and then expand upon them and become think leaders in, in, in the industry it positions our graduates. Again, I'll speak for Johnson Wales because I teach there. And of course, we're all sort of like partisan, you know, culinary school advocates, whatever. Like it positions them to be night and day ahead of people that are coming out of a more traditional college that maybe just have a background in sustainability. Not only do our students have a background in sustainability and an education in sustainability at higher levels, but they also have the application side to back it up. And that's something that other schools can't touch, even CIA. Yeah, no, I, I think you speak to one of the advantages of studying culinary arts at a more comprehensive uh, university type setting. Um, uh, and, and I think across, you know, when you look at some of the challenges that's uh, in the literature um, in culinary education, it mirrors the same challenges in like engineering programs. Uh, you're looking at the need for critical thinking, 
the need for critical thinking skills, problem solving skills, communication skills. Um, those are transferable skills um, that really cut across a number of different disciplines. Um, and we see those as challenges today. And, and guess what? Guess what chefs do really well? We are creative um, people. We can think outside the box, right? So we solve problems every single day. We pivot. We pivot, man. It's like we're firefighters. I always say chefs are firefighters. They're just putting out fires every day. We are. But the problem becomes when we can't communicate, when we can't write proper emails, when we can't write a resume or a cover letter or have interpersonal skills in the workplace. And I think that if we're talking higher education, right, getting into a master's program, you need a bachelor's degree. And there are culinary programs out there that you get a certificate in, and therefore you're not taking any academic classes. And I think it's really important that we emphasize how important academics are, like English, because when you need to communicate with people or hire people or have business meetings, if you want to go into the business side of things, having those skills is so important. And as someone who used to hire, reading a cover letter was if you didn't have a great cover letter, use proper English, spelling, punctuation, I was slim to none chance of me reaching back out to you. I just think they always say this, and maybe I'm dating myself, but it really is your first impression. And being a manager, you have to also communicate with staff, front of, front of house staff, your own staff. And to have the skills to do that is really, really important. And I don't, I don't want to gloss over how important those skills really are. But, the, but that certificate, Jamie, that you mentioned that, you know, a lot of places still offer. And even, even Johnson & Wales is involved in this with some of the, you know, culinary guilds that are out there. We're offering certificate programs for, you know, large companies that can, you know, push their employees into a more um, – credentialed, whether it be through a certificate uh, rank, you know, and, they, and we, and we provide training for that, but it does speak to what Mike said earlier, that's workforce development. Like, and, and there's value there and we still need that, but that level of critical thinking again, which Mike sort of, you know, introduced and then Jamie, you went into how important it was like, you, you, you didn't mention public speaking and like it, it does say, like, I'm not saying a lot of chefs are going to go out there and, and speak to large groups, but this could just be talking to your employees and learning how to speak Eloquently might be the wrong word, but just in the professional, respectful way. That's why so much of the curriculum that we teach at Johnson & Wales, especially like I teach juniors and seniors, you know, we, we don't focus as much on the food as we do in the first couple years. We focus way more on leadership development and being able to speak to your peers, your employees, that they will be with respect. And, and that's how you can, you know, become a strong leader. That's how you can retain your staff and avoid training and all the things that cost us tons of money. It's so funny. I always say that I hate public speaking, but it's technically become my job now being a teacher is I am now a public speaker. But one thing I wanted to mention on uh, certificates real quick is I think they are, I'm not discounting them. I looked at one myself. I think they are great programs and it immediately gets you the knowledge and the skills to go into the workforce. And I think they're great for someone who maybe has a degree in something else and looking to change careers because then you already have those general academics under your belt. And this just gets you the technical part. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I, I think that uh, I completely agree. You know, certificates can be used uh, for continuing education purposes um, as well. So uh, it's not necessarily uh, an end. And it's important to note, you know, that, uh, you know, even students graduating uh, from a culinary program, 
we call it commencement for a reason. Um, it is not the end. It is the beginning of your career. You, you have to engage in that lifelong learning approach that has always been part of uh, even the apprenticeship model, uh, right? That's just part of the dedication to our craft uh, is the willingness to put in the time uh, and energy uh, into it. And and it's a lifelong practice um, uh, that you're going to be engaging in. And that's something that culinary schools have have always dipped their toe into a little bit with continuing education. I know CIA has programs. Johnson & Wales has like Chef's Choice where you can come back and you can explore different cuisines. But I also think that it's becoming more prevalent you know, as we move into the next chapter of culinary education is to not only focus on, you know, our students while we have them in the building, but also to provide, you know, again, Mike, as you said, lifelong resources for them to come back, right? And to understand that they'll always have a home and that the learning never stops. And that's, you know, one thing that we do is the symposium that we just read last Tuesday, the FIT symposium. Like it's an opportunity to bring in industry speakers to, to continue to engage Johnson & Wales and others in a conversation about where our industry is and where it's heading, which will only make them better at their own craft. And to add on to the lifelong learning theme, if you look at us as educators, we're constantly and continually learning. We need to stay on top of the trends and what's happening in the industry to keep us and our curriculum and our classrooms relevant. And if you also look, there's so many ways that you can learn now. There's social media and there's YouTube and there's Instagram and everything, all these different places that people are putting out content and ways for you to learn and constantly be evolving yourself. Yeah. So, so I, I think to, to bring it back to where culinary education is, you know, today and where we're headed and what I see just from a curriculum standpoint, um, you know, I, I really kind of reflect upon, um, the guiding principles around uh, transformative learning uh, that brings in experience, uh, critical reflection, uh, reflective discourse with others, uh, and action um, all together at this, um, uh, really at this one meeting point that helps transform the learner uh, and the learning experience uh, alike. And, and, and there are several guiding principles um, that we used in a number of our programs uh, within within the college um, to really help guide us through what we're calling a 21st century culinary education. And they come from, you know, some leading researchers like um, Dr. Mancilla, uh, who talks about a disposition of inquiry, just curiosity about the world, a disposition of understanding multiple perspectives um, and being able to uh, communicate uh, across those perspectives a, disp a disposition towards respectful dialogue and a disposition toward uh, taking responsible action. And I think more than ever, we see chefs now taking a role um, and really looking at their surrounding communities, the world, and some of the systemic problems uh, within, the, uh, within the food system or across the food system. And they're playing an active role in engaging in those discussions and being part of that solution. And Mike, what you're talking about is is almost like this this idea of social gastronomy, and you could call it food advocacy, corporate citizenship, whatever you want to call it. But all those things, those you know, 
curiosity, um, you know, and the things that you talked about in your list, like those all speak to like becoming a scholar, right? And to becoming, you know, sort of just a, a, a lifelong thinker that's going to take things that you learned, continuously learn throughout your career and apply those lessons to make the world and in case this world, the food industry, a better place. So I think that, you know, what we're doing, you know, at Johnson and Wales and others, I, I don't want to like sell them short, is the schools that are out there and the culinary education, um, you know, environments that exist today that have stood the test of time, they're creating food thinkers. And I think that that's almost as important as creating someone who knows how to make a bechamel or a roux or a chocolate cake. Because Jamie, as you mentioned, all those skills in theory, could be learned by watching a YouTube video. And I don't want to discount those uh, types of learning as well, because they are important. They help reinforce what we already know. But I would much rather hang my hat on the idea that we're creating people that can actually think rather than people that can, than, than people that can actually cook. And I think at Johnson & Wales and perhaps at other schools as well, the culinary education models that are out there, we're doing both. And I think that that's a really uh, great testament to you know where we are where we're going and probably that will be around for a long time. And that culinary education, at least as we know it is always going to exist. So I think it's a good opportunity just to sort of, you know, feel a little comfortable that the people that went through culinary school, you know, you didn't do it for no reason. And the people that are considering going to culinary school, there's always going to be an opportunity for you to think bigger than what you already know and to expand your horizons. So I think that's really important. Um, I know we could talk for hours, you know, three educators talking about culinary education, but we are coming up at the end of our time. So I just want to thank Jamie and Mike, obviously, for joining me today and, and, and joining the pod. And we're all getting together just to talk about something that, Jamie, I know me and you have wanted to talk about for two years now. Just get it out oh there. Oh, my gosh. I know. And it's there's still things that I'm thinking. Uh, there's so much more we could even talk about. And I will just, just add super quick is I don't think YouTube is a replacement for a school education for hands-on learning, but it's a great reinforcer and it's a great addition. Correct. Correct. Mike, any final words? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think, uh, I think YouTube and the internet, you know, information is all around us nowadays, right? Um, and as instructors that changes the way we teach, we're really curators of that information. Um, and it's important to teach our students how to pick, you know, and decipher between, the really valuable good information and the ones that may be leading them astray. Uh, you know, cause there, there are a lot of bad recipes that don't necessarily work out there and we've all come across them and students bringing them into our classroom and saying, Oh chef, Hey, I want to try this. And you're like, well, did you really critically think and examine this recipe? How do you think it's going to work out? You know, uh, did, did you read the recipe? The challenge. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Well, <laughs> it's like, notice that like step there's no mention of the this ingredient in the recipe and they're like oh i didn't really notice that and like i think that 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 is such a small thing but it is so huge to critically evaluate what you're kind of considering to be expertise and then to experiment and to apply it i think that that's that's the takeaway yep it's just inspiration I want to thank everyone for listening today and remind you that you can find us on social media at Culinary Now Pod. And if you liked our intro music, 
you can please feel free to check out Matt Burns. He provides all of our music for us for the pod. And be sure to give us a review on any of our you know, listening platforms, whether it be Apple or Spotify. We appreciate the feedback. And make sure you give us five stars. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thank you, guys. We're the brave and the bold. And we are.